Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy B. Wilson. Okay, Tracy, that episode on swill milk was horrifying. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it. Listeners won't know unless we tell them. We recorded that in the same session as we're about to record this. They're spread out in the calendar. They're right together in the studio. Yeah, so I had had mostly finished researching that one, and it was so depressing. I actually didn't turn it in the normal time I would, and I messaged you like, I cannot look at any more illustrations of abused cows tonight. Like, I can't, mm-hmm. <laughs> I can't do it. Um, and so after that, I needed a palate cleanser. I could not bear the thought of another downer. And I loved the idea of doing something fun with animals to counter it. So in thinking of something both comforting and fun, I thought about kitties, of course. Uh, specifically, historically interesting cats. And there are actually a lot of them. But I really wanted to keep it fairly upbeat in the ones I selected, so that is a promise I can make you. Uh, You can rest assured that all creatures, of course, pass on, but none of the cats in these stories meet a bad end. Uh, And if this one is fun, we can always do more like this down the road, right? Historical animal groupings could be a whole new genre for us. I think we've got way, way, way back in the archives, so long ago that I'm pretty sure it's Candace's farewell episode historical pooches. They're dogs. I think that's Sarah's first episode. There are actually two historical war dogs. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the first one is Sarah's first episode where they do the adios to Candace. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so, uh, but to set this up and do kind of an introduction, because I wanted to include this, but um, it's not exactly meaty in terms of what we know. We're going to briefly touch on a cat we don't really know much about, but I thought it made a nice place to start. So the first cat we're going to talk about, as Holly said, is honestly pretty thin on information. So this is kind of an introductory remark. It's pretty short. The name of the cat is also the name of a poem, Pangerbon. This poem was originally written in the 9th century by an Irish monk, and the name translates to White Fuller. The poem was found in a manuscript in a monastery in Austria, and that is the only place it has appeared, this one copy of this poem. Yeah, I also have seen that place being attributed to Germany. I didn't go super deep. It could be a a matter of shifting lines, but... The important thing here is that this is a very popular piece of literature, and it has been translated many times, including a very, very well-known version by Robin Flower. There's a version by W.H. Auden. And then in 2006, it was translated by Seamus Heaney. And Heaney actually wrote of the work, quote, Pangerbon is a poem that Irish writers like to try their hand at, not in order to outdo the previous versions, but simply to get a more exact and intimate grip on the canonical goods. The poem explores the writer's efforts at putting words to paper and compares it to his cat's endeavors at mouse catching. Ultimately, it becomes about simply working through the effort to find the moments of success and the likening of this monk's intellectual pursuit to the cat's instinctual efforts offers a literary example of cats, not only as companions, but also as philosophical mirrors to humans. So it seemed like a good prelude to an episode about historical cats. 
Yeah, as we consider why we notate cats of important history, <laughs> this is, is what seemed like a great place to start. And this poem is not especially long, but I'm not going to read the whole thing. Instead, I'll just jump to the last three stanzas. This is of the Heaney translation. So if you look it up just in general, you might find something different, but these are his. With his unsheathed perfect nails, Panger springs, exults, and kills. When the longed-for difficult answers come, I too exult. So it goes, to each his own, no vying, no vexation, taking pleasure, taking pains, kindred spirits, veterans. Day and night, soft purr, soft pad, Panger Bon has learned his trade. Day and night, my own hard work, solve the cruxes, makes a mark. So we don't know anything about Panger Bon other than a love of hunting mice. We do know a bit more about the three other cats that we're covering all of whom have made very different marks on history. Yeah, so to cover this first one, we actually have to touch on just a little bit of history about England's transition from being ruled by the House of York under Richard III to being ruled by the Tudors, and specifically the life of a courtier who comes up periodically named Henry Wyatt. There's a portrait of Wyatt that was painted sometime in the 18th century by an unknown artist, and it features Wyatt on the left side of the composition and a cat on the right. The cat is a gray or silver tabby, and it has its paw upon a pigeon. The cat is gazing directly at Wyatt, but Wyatt is not looking at the cat. His gaze is fixed on something to the right of the frame, and this scene is set in a prison. The cat is actually pulling the pigeon through the bars on the window, And that cat, which is featured in other portraits of Wyatt as well, becomes in some ways central to the Wyatt family history. Henry Wyatt was the son of Richard Wyatt, a squire, and Richard's wife, Margaret, who was an heir of William Bailiff. And Henry was born in 1460. We don't know a lot about his early years, but as a young man, he aligned himself with the Tudors, it appears, before they took the throne. He is believed by some to have participated in a revolt against King Richard III in 1483, and that revolt, known as Buckingham's Revolt and named for Henry Stafford, 2nd Duke of Buckingham, was backed by the exiled Tudors, but it was unsuccessful. Though it failed, the massive revolt, which included a small fleet of ships from Brittany, did destabilize Richard III's power. As for his involvement in the attempted overthrow of the king, Henry Wyatt is said to have been imprisoned by Richard III. The location for this is usually given as the Tower of London, but it's not entirely certain. Richard III historian Annette Carson notes that based on a letter written in April 1538 by Henry Wyatt's son, Thomas the Elder, he was more likely imprisoned in Scotland. We're going to come back to the specifics of this imprisonment, but after Richard III was killed at the Battle of Bosworth and King Henry VII took the throne, Henry Wyatt was freed from whichever prison it was that he was in. And from there, his fortune grew. He became keeper of Norwich Castle in 1485. Then he was made clerk of the King's Jewels in 1486. He then was promoted to master of the King's Jewels and clerk of the King's Mint before gaining the title keeper of the change, assayer of the money and coinage, and comptroller of the mint. He acquired Allington Castle in 1492. And in 1504, he was made privy counselor to the king and was granted arms by Henry VII in the years that followed. And when Henry VIII ascended to the throne, Wyatt served him as well and became treasurer of the king's chamber. 
Wyatt is often described as a man who was beloved by many, and he lived with sounds, other than that imprisonment problem, like a pretty good life for a courtier of the time, up until his death in November 1537. But all of this was possible because he survived that period of imprisonment, which is often described as brutal, and the hero of that story is a cat. So we don't have any contemporary accounts of Sir Henry Wyatt's time in prison. He doesn't show up on any prison records, and thus there are no notes regarding the nature of his treatment or the conditions he may have faced there. It's also why we're not sure exactly which prison it was. What we do have are accounts that were recorded by his descendants, so we have to caveat that these are all family stories. They don't have primary sources to back them up. You probably have family stories, and you know that some of them have shifted and embellished over time and maybe aren't entirely true. However, this is a very good story. Uh, In 1731, Richard Wyatt, who was Henry's great-great-great-great-grandson, created a document titled Passages Taken Out of a Manuscript Wrote by Thomas Scott of Eggerston in Godmersham Esquire Concerning the Family of Wyatt of Allington. The Thomas Scott reference there was the great-great-grandson of Henry Wyatt, and he was recording what was told to him by another family member, most likely his grandmother. So you can see how easily this entire thing may have been embellished or ballooned or just moved around a little bit in various ways. The basics of the family story, though, were that during his imprisonment, Henry was tortured, possibly by Richard III himself, This torture went on in a variety of ways, and more importantly to this story, he was also starved until a cat saved him. The passage from Richard Wyatt's document that mentions this cat reads as follows, quote, He was imprisoned often, once in a cold and narrow tower, where he had neither bed to lie on, nor clothes sufficient to warm him, nor meat for his mouth. He had starved there, had not God, who sent a crow to feed his prophet, sent this and his country's martyr, a cat, both to feed and warm him. It was his own relation unto them from whom I had it. A cat came one day down into the dungeon unto him, and, as it were, offered herself unto him. He was glad of her, laid her in his bosom to warm him, and by making much of her won her love, After this, she would come every day into him diverse times, and when she could get one, bring him a pigeon. He complained to his keeper of his cold and short fare. The answer was he durst not better it. But, said Sir Henry, if I can provide any, will you promise to dress it for me? I may well enough, said he. You are safe for that matter, and being urged again promised him and kept his promise, dressed for him, from time to time, such pigeons as his Akador the cat provided for him. Sir Henry Wyatt, in his prosperity for this, would ever make much of cats as other men of their spaniels or hounds, and perhaps you shall not find his picture anywhere but like Sir Christopher Hatton with his dog, with a cat beside him. Okay, so in case that somewhat stilted language makes it tricky to discern, Henry Wyatt made a deal with his jailer that the jailer would dress and cook any meat that Wyatt came up with. Something that Wyatt did when he realized the cat was bringing him provisions in the form of pigeons. And the jailer agreed, kind of thinking such a request might be nonsense, but apparently stuck to the agreement when Wyatt produced these pigeons. And so he ate pretty regularly thanks to this nameless cat. Incidentally, the word 
Akator, which appears in the text, is an old spelling of the word akator, which is an obsolete version of the word caterer. So Sir Henry Wyatt's salvation, at least according to his family legend, was a caterer cat. We do not know what happened to the caterer cat who is said to have saved Wyatt. Presumably, she stayed behind uh, when he was freed. Yeah, since it seemed to be, you know, uh, maybe a wild cat that lived on the grounds. I hope she lived out a good and long life eating all of the pigeons without having to share them. Uh, Sorry, pigeons. Coming up, we will talk about a wartime cat who is said to have had extraordinary good luck. But first, we are going to pause for a sponsor break. Some cats appear in history with several different names, really making the most of their nine lives to take on various identities. Uh, That is the case with this World War II cat. Although, there are also some very real questions about whether these really were all the same cat. We'll talk about that at the end. And this story starts aboard the German battleship Bismarck. The Bismarck was one of the largest warships European manufacturers ever produced, and it was made to withstand a lot. It was designed for the German Navy with armor as its primary attribute, and that was at the expense of speed and gunpowder. And when the Bismarck was first launched in February 1939, it was apparent to British forces that it was formidable, the Bismarck also had a sister ship, the Tirpitz. So the two of them made for this really daunting addition to the German fleet. When World War II officially started on September 1st, 1939, it was understood that the Bismarck was a key part of the Nazi naval effort. Yeah, it didn't have its first mission, though, for a while. In May of 1941, the Bismarck was part of Operation Rheineberg. It was sent, along with the heavy cruiser Prinz Eugen, into the North Atlantic to attack Allied convoys. The Bismarck was there to engage with the heavier escort ships. On May 24th, the Bismarck and Prinz Eugen engaged with the battlecruiser HMS Hood and the battleship Prince of Wales in what has come to be known as the Battle of the Denmark Strait. The Hood was sunk, and the Prince of Wales got three shell hits on the Bismarck, but the German ship managed to get away and limped toward occupied France. The British Navy tracked the Bismarck and continued to attack. On May 27th, the Bismarck sank in the North Atlantic. Of its 2,200-man crew, you will see anywhere from 114 to 118 listed as the number of survivors. That's obviously the very short version of the life of the Bismarck. But you'll notice we haven't mentioned a feline yet, and that is because the cat in question is said to have been found in the wreckage of the Bismarck floating on a piece of debris. was rescued by the HMS Cossack, a tribal-class destroyer that had been part of a group that was pursuing the Bismarck. This rescue was referenced by a famous portrait of the cat, which the crew called Oscar, sometimes with the German spelling of O-S-K-A-R, Uh, British artist Georgina Shaw Baker did this. It's a pastel portrait with Oscar sitting adrift on a board, turning to look at the viewer. So according to the story, once aboard the Cossack, Oscar became part of that crew and thus switched sides in the war as well. For the next several months, he was the mascot for the Cossack, which ran primarily as an escort ship for convoys. Those are the very convoys that the Bismarck and other German ships had been attacking. 
On October 24, 1941, the Cossack was escorting an Allied convoy from Gibraltar to Britain when it was torpedoed by a German U-boat. A section of the boat exploded and more than 100 crew members were killed. The rest of the crew transferred to another ship, the HMS Legion, with the intention that the still-floating Cossack would be towed back to Gibraltar. But conditions made that impossible, and the Cossack actually sank three days after the torpedo strike on October 27th. But while Oscar had not transferred over to the Legion, his story goes on, he was rescued once again, clinging to floating debris, and then taken to Gibraltar with the rest of the surviving crew. At this point, his name changed to Unsinkable Sam for obvious reasons. (laughs) Since Sam had a temperament that seemed to be well-suited to life at sea at this point, he was soon part of another crew this time aboard the HMS Ark Royal, which was an aircraft carrier that had actually been involved in the destruction of the Bismarck. The Ark Royal had a reputation for luck. It had narrowly avoided torpedo strikes a number of times, and it had actually even been falsely reported by the Germans as a successful hit, even when it was not. But once again, Sam found himself on a sinking ship. Less than three weeks after unsinkable Sam went aboard the Ark Royal, It took a torpedo hit. That was on November 14th, 1941. One man died, but the rest of the crew and unsinkable Sam survived. Sam was probably getting used to hanging onto debris and awaiting rescue, and that method worked once again. This time, he was described when he was plucked from the water as, quote, angry but quite unharmed. Uh, He was rescued by the HMS Legion. That was the same ship that had taken the survivors of the Cossack aboard when it was hit. Whether it was because he was considered unlucky at this point or whether officials just thought this poor cat had had enough, Sam was retired from service at sea after the Ark Royal's demise. He was given a new job, though. He was a mouser in the governor of Gibraltar's office complex. He did not stay there permanently, though. He eventually landed in Ireland, where he became the mascot and companion at a home for retired sailors in Belfast, Uh, Sam allegedly lived there until he died of natural causes in old age in 1955, and that would have meant all of those sinking and survival adventures had happened when he was really a very young cat. Yeah, that that he would have been, if he was a newborn then, he would have been 14, which is, you know, uh, old for a cat. Not ancient, but, you know, mature. And uh, he was an adult cat when they first found him, so that makes him at least 15, surely, and probably a little older. Uh, you might be thinking all of this seems really hard to believe. Cat plucked out of the ocean thrice aboard a piece of debris. And there have absolutely been questions about unsinkable Sam's story over the years. The Bismarck portion of the story in particular is not well documented. None of the survivor accounts ever mention a cat, but that also would likely have been a trivial enough matter that it might not have come up. Additionally, while there is no official paperwork on record of the Bismarck having a cat on board, there has certainly been speculation over the years that one of the German sailors snuck him on, or simply that he had managed to get aboard while the ship was in dock. There's also a problem with the Bismarck segment of the story because photos that have been used as images of Oscar slash Unsinkable Sam, uh, some of those images are clearly not the same cat. One is a tabby. But the photo is black and white, so the colors aren't obvious. 
Baker's portrait is clearly a black-and-white tuxedo cat, and all the other photos of Oscar slash Unsinkable Sam are also black-and-white tuxedos. It's a little unclear where that tabby photo originated, so it's impossible to know if something just got mixed up somewhere along the line, or if two different cat stories got commingled into sailors' stories over the years, or maybe if there's some other explanation. Oh, but the tuxedo cat images also come with some problems. <laughs> uh, there is a particular photo that you will often see in articles about Unsinkable Sam, and it is a black and white tuxedo. But that cat has a tag on his collar that clearly reads HMS Amethyst 1949. Now, the Amethyst did have a tuxedo cat that was the ship's mascot in 1949. That's, of course, eight years after all of this Sam business. That cat's name was Simon, though. <laughs> If you do an online search for Unsinkable Sam, you'll realize that it quickly becomes tricky to figure out what pictures of a tuxedo cat might be Sam and which might be Simon. There are a lot of pictures of tuxedos with British sailors, and they look a lot alike. Although if you really, really look closely at them, you might be able to make out a subtle difference in the color demarcation in their faces, but they are very similar. I even saw one picture that was attributed to unsinkable Sam that looks like it might be a longer-haired cat than either of them, and it might have slightly more black on its face than either of them had. So it becomes very, very tricky, the Sam story. Uh, And that portrait by Georgina Shaw Baker has slightly different facial markings than either Sam or Simon. That could just be a matter of artistic license, though. That artwork is in the collection of the National Maritime Museum in Greenwich. It's Currently not on display, though, so there's no real hard evidence of uh, the seeming miracle cat that survived three different ship sinkings during wartime. That whole idea persists, though, because it's a good story. (laughs) Who doesn't want to think that a little kitty survived all of this mayhem and the horrors of war and became much beloved by various crews, no matter what, uh, what side of this business they were on? Our last cat is one of those animals that is something of a character, and he was quite lovingly documented by the people who knew him, and I love his story. And we're going to talk about the museum feline after we first hear from the sponsors who keep Stuff You Missed in History class going. Our next historical cat will appeal to listeners who, like me, have a soft spot for cantankerous animals. Uh, This is about Mike the Cat, who guarded the British Museum from dogs and other menaces for two decades. The story of Mike the Cat starts with another cat called Black Jack. He was described as black with, quote, a white shirt front and paws. So, another tuxedo. I know some folks who love tuxedos the best of all cats, so it doesn't really surprise me. I think we know some of the same people who Mm -hmm. love tuxedos the best of all cats. So, Black Jack often visited the Department of Printed Books at the museum and was friendly with everyone. But then one day in 1908, he got shut into the reading room and tore up the bindings of some of the books while sharpening his claws. Naturally, he was no longer welcome. One of the staff had been tasked with getting rid of him, but Black Jack was nowhere to be found. He had actually been rescued by the staff, was being fed elsewhere. Uh, Official reports, though, were that he had disappeared and was presumed to have died. Uh, But Black Jack, 
like a phoenix, rose from the ashes. <laughs> Blackjack reappeared not long after all of this. Several weeks had gone by, carrying a kitten, which he brought to a staff member of the museum. Fittingly, the keeper of Egyptian antiquities, who it's often referenced, normally cared for mummified cats. Uh, yes, you may be wondering, I wondered too, if Blackjack wasn't a lady cat who vanished to have kittens and then brought one back to a place she knew was safe. But there is no real discussion on that point in the documentation I found. Uh, That kitten that Blackjack brought back was named Mike, and Mike was welcomed and taken care of, and Blackjack also stuck around. Uh, And as Mike got older, he started to stroll around the grounds of the British Museum, and he became pretty good friends with the gatekeepers. Mike lived what sounds like a pretty fun life for a cat. He would catch pigeons and bring them home, although he did not seem interested in eating them. The housekeepers would then rescue these dazed birds and nurse them back to health and set them free again. And during visits to the museum, he was given scraps by the waitresses who worked in the cafe there. Life O'Reilly. Mike eventually started spending more time at the museum gatehouse than anywhere else. And over time, that became his house. But museum staff made sure he stayed fed uh, just at the gatehouse instead of his former abode. We'll talk about the person who was really his caretaker. And uh, the gatekeepers themselves took care of him as well. An account of Mike's life states, quote, the keeper of the mummied cats took care to feed him during the lean years of the war. And whoever went short, Mike did not. He owed much to the three kind-hearted gatekeepers who cooked his food for him and treated him as a man and brother. Mike apparently hated dogs. It was written, quote, The dogs that laughed at policemen and gatekeepers fled in terror before the attack of Mike, who, swelling himself to twice his normal size, hurled himself on them. Whereas Blackjack seemed friendly with almost everyone, Mike was a little pickier and who could interact with him. Apparently, he liked the company of men over women and was said to have ripped up many ladies' gloves when they tried to pet him. (laughs) Cantankerous cat. As many cantankerous cats, Mike lived a very long life. And as his age crept up into the late teens, he started to have problems with his teeth, which many cats do. And so the gatekeepers and the other staff always ensured that he only had the softest pieces of fish or meat to eat. Mike is unlike the other cats we've discussed today because his life was documented by the people at the museum who loved him in spite of this less-than-cuddly disposition, as well as by the press. A tabby guarding the British Museum was a great story for reporters. The Star, which was an evening paper in London, ran a piece on July 21st, 1927 that read, quote, In its day, no cat has lived so public a life as Mike, the big tabby that keeps watch and ward at the gate at the British Museum. The same article later proclaimed, quote, no scholar can be quite as wise as Museum Mike looks. And Mike really did have a look about him. Um, There are a couple of photos of him which really evidence his personality. In one, which is labeled Mike in a benevolent mood after a fish lunch, sitting for his portrait, Mike is sitting upright, and he looks, even with a full tummy and presumably quite sated, like a cat you would just not want to mess with. (laughs) And in another photo, Mike is shown standing on all fours with his mouth open. He looks like he's yelling, and it was labeled by his caretaker, Mike expressing his opinion of a dog he had just run out of the courtyard of the museum. Mike died on January 15th, 1929, at the age of 20. 
He was so well-known and beloved that even Time Magazine ran an obituary for him to honor Museum Mike's memory, E.A. Wallace Budge, keeper of Egyptian and Assyrian antiquities for the museum and the person who cared for Mike from his kittenhood and stayed his favorite person throughout his life, wrote a pamphlet about this feline friend. That work opens with, quote, this little pamphlet had been prepared at the request of many friends of Mike, readers past and present in the British Museum, members of the staff, and admirers of Mike on the continent and in America. And that pamphlet actually became well-known in its own right, so much so that a year after Mike's passing on January 20th, 1930, Time magazine proclaimed, quote, copies of what English cat lovers prize as the budge monograph on Mike reached Manhattan last week. So it made news... (laughs) when it was available here in the States. The brief write-up about its availability to U.S. readers compared the Mike pamphlet to Budge's other scholarly work, calling it, quote, the acme of obital biography, fit to rank with his monumental Coptic history of Elijah the Tishbite. The pamphlet also includes a poem about Mike by F.C.W. Hiley, assistant keeper in the Department of Printed Books, It's quite a long poem, so we won't read the whole thing, but we have two excerpts which paint a vivid picture of the tabby Mike. The first reads, He'd sit and sun himself sedately. No sphinx or segment looked more stately. He cared not in the very least for human being, bird, or beast. He let the pigeons eat their fill, nor even one was known to kill, but scared them if they strayed too nigh by the sole terror of his eye. Hiley also includes four lines in the poem about how Mike bit him once. And that he probably deserved it for bothering him. Uh, He also goes on about how Mike really, really, truly loved Sir Ernest Budge, who seemed to have a magical effect on this surly feline. And the final lines of the poem, I was reading this poem and I was like in tears because clearly like so many people love this cat. But then I read the final lines and I started laughing so loud. My husband ran upstairs to see if I was okay. And they read, oh, Mike, farewell. We all regret you, although you would not let us pet you. Of cats, the wisest, oldest, best cat. This be your motto, requius cat. So the British Museum marked the 50th anniversary of Mike's death with another pamphlet, which was a modernized and abridged one with cartoon illustrations. They titled it Mike the Cat, a Jubilee Reminiscence. Yeah, both of those pamphlets are available online. (laughs) They are so fun to read. And if you are a person who has ever just, you know, been very attached to an animal, uh, it's, it's so apparent in the language of the writing that Budge did about Mike, how much he really loved this cat who was a grouch. (laughs) It's really quite incredibly charming. Um, So those are our three upbeat historical cats for today. To continue the animal love fest, um, I have a listener mail about our uh, listener, Maggie, who... Uh, was prompted to write in after I told the story of Mr. Burns killing our Roomba. Uh, Maggie writes, Hi, Tracy and Holly. Of course, it's the fat cat on Roomba story that gets me to finally write in. History? Now, let me tell you about my aspiring robot pilot. I have an ancient Roomba, 2008 model, that plays the same song and has the button on top. That's basically what I described in my story. I also have a semi-free-range pet rat who discovered she can turn the Roomba on. 
While she likes to ride it as it backs off of its station with that cute backing up beep, she is completely startled every time the brushes kick in and runs appropriately for safety. Whenever I hear the startup song unexpectedly, I rush over to turn the Roomba off because I'm worried about the safety of her tiny tail. She generally is unimpressed by my urgency. Then, one day, I had my headphones on. Freya came hurrying toward me and touched my feet with her tiny hands. She looked stressed. I took off my headphones and heard the Roomba going wild in the living room. She had set loose the robot, and I didn't do my part, and now the world was chaos. Her tail was fine. It's been about three months, and she hasn't started the Roomba since. I'm thinking of building her one of those electric rat cars instead, and since she likes to push buttons, we're working on language buttons. Our first word is snuggle. She hasn't gotten a grasp on the button yet, but she flattens out for pets anytime she hears the word now. I hope you and all your family members, human and beast, are doing well and continuing to have tiny adventures, Maggie. I love this story so much. Mm -hmm. Um, I also love any stories about when people are training their pets to, like, make communication bridges with them. Um, Those are always fascinating to me, and I absolutely love, 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 love them. Um, I also want to make sure I thank Reagan and Mary for writing to tell us that my Mr. Burns story made them laugh. Um, (laughs) You know, as I mentioned, Mr. Burns left us earlier this year. It's something I have really struggled with to a ridiculous degree by some people's standards, I'm sure. So it it makes me happy that he, who is a punchline cat, continues to make people laugh. (laughs) (laughs) because he was a very ugly cat that I thought was beautiful. (laughs) I mean, a fat, dirty-looking Devin Rex, Mr. Burns. Uh, So that delighted me, and I'm glad that is his legacy to make people giggle still. If you would like to write to us about your poorly behaved or delightful or angelic animal, those exist too, uh, you can do so at HistoryPodcast at iHeartRadio.com. You can also find us on social media, and uh, you can subscribe to the show on the iHeartRadio app or anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.